0: Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 65. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration provide electrolyte and hydration products of different strengths so that you can match The product with the specific concentration of sodium that you need because everybody loses different amounts of sodium in their sweat from very low sweat sodium concentrations to very high sweat sodium concentrations and replacing that sodium if you are especially on the higher end is very important for maintaining performance in especially longer and warmer races but that also goes for for training in indoors when you will be sweating a lot and a lot of you are in your base training phases right now spending a lot of time on the indoor trainer and on treadmills so it's definitely something that you need to consider especially again if your workouts are uh, on the longer end of things check them out on precisionhydration.com and get your first box or tube for free with the promo code that's Treflon show all one word all caps and big thanks to Roka that you can find on roca.com. Important note here, a very important note. Pay attention to this. Uh, we are changing the promo code from whatever it was before that I'm not even going to mention to the new code, TTS20. TTS20. TTS is with all caps. And uh, this code will get you 20% off your entire order, whether it's uh, wetsuits, uh, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, uh, eyewear, The code has been changed. So, the previous code that you've heard on old podcasts and can see still in the show notes of old episodes does not apply anymore. TTS20 is the one that you should use at checkout to get that 20% discount. And uh, perhaps you are still looking for those last minute Christmas gifts. If the recipient of those gifts is a triathlete or endurance athlete, definitely check out roca.com because there will be plenty of uh, of good options for you there if you are still figuring out what to get for for some of your triathlon friends and family members. All right, one more housekeeping item actually before we get into today's questions. If you are a web designer and or a front-end developer... I am going to update the scientifictriathlon.com website in early 2020 and need some professional help with that. So listen to the end of the episode to get some more details on that. But for now, let's get into today's questions. The first one is from Michael in Sydney, Australia, who writes, Hi Michael, quick question. How rested does an athlete need to be before undertaking any serious testing? For example, a lactate ramp test or inside testing? I did a bike lactate test recently to help define my racing heart rate zones for my first Ironman race, but I was quite fatigued before undertaking the test coming off a very big training fortnight and I also hadn't slept very much the two to three nights prior. The results seem to be quite a bit below what I can actually do on the bike when outdoors on the weekend. Would you recommend to disregard the lactate test results and rather focus on the perceived exertion and average heart rate and normalized power numbers from my recent weekend long long rides or do lactate tests never lie? That is, is lactate testing heavily influenced by the level of fatigue you are carrying or is lactate testing independent of your current fatigue levels? I'm thinking ignore the lactate test as my weekend long rides for the last five weekends straight leading up to the Ironman, have been returning consistently much better metrics than the lactate test. All right, thank you for your question. Uh, So there's a lot to dig into here. And uh, I guess to start with, lactate values and tests, they are generally pretty accurate. But that being said, interpreting them isn't always that straightforward. So to clarify what I mean here, uh, with a traditional lactate ramp test, that uh, the kind of test that you were doing here, the goal is uh, generally a rightward shift of the lactate curve. So you will reach your LT1 and LT2 at higher power numbers or higher pace numbers. Mm-hmm. The heart rates here generally don't shift, but you will see that maybe if your LT2 heart rate was 160 before, it will still be 160 in the next test or there or thereabouts. Of course, it's not exact, but within a few beats per minute. But perhaps you have uh, increased your power by 10, 15, 20, 30 watts, and that's what you're looking for there. So uh, you want those two turn points, the LT1 and LT2, to occur Further right on the curve at a higher power when we're plotting lactate on the y axis and power or pace on the x axis. But we could see this kind of rightward shift of the lactate curve in overtrained athletes, actually. And uh, I'll link to a study by uh, Bosquet and uh, his colleagues in the episode description. They took experienced cyclists and actually drove them to uh, pretty close to overtraining, at least a very significant non-functional overreaching. And uh, they saw this kind of rightward shift in the lactate curve in those overtrained athletes. Uh, But what they also saw is that even though the curve itself shifted right, they saw lower peak lactate concentrations. So they just couldn't produce as much lactate in absolute values. Now this is just to give you an example of uh, the fact that seeing a rightward shift in the lactate curve might mean completely different things it might mean that you have been getting a lot fitter or it might mean that you have been getting overtrained so uh, so the interpretation and the context here is is very important uh, what has happened for you here isn't a rightward shift of the curve necessarily uh, for you the question is more one of your training zones or your thresholds seem to be too low compared to what you're actually doing and feeling in training. So so we can almost interpret this as a leftward shift of the lactate curve. Uh, but, uh, but the point here, again, is that the lactate test, while the test itself might be accurate, it uh, provides a snapshot of uh, your fitness and your physiology on the given day that the test was made. And if you undertook the test in very fatigued conditions, then that snapshot is going to be reflective of that. So it's not that the test lies or anything like that, but it's about understanding the full context in which the test was undertaken and trying to control any controllable variables. We can say regarding lactate tests from scientific studies that they are generally, they have good validity and reliability which means that uh, repeatedly doing lactate tests in a controlled manner at the same sort of fitness with the same exact methods will give you very similar results for each test. So it is an accurate and uh, and high-precision testing method. That's not the problem. Uh, the problem there is that... If you're going into a test very fatigued, uh, that will for sure reduce your performance capabilities compared to doing the test relatively fresh. So the context is uh, completely different. Different. And uh, to give you some examples of how your physiology is changing in a fatigued condition, there is some evidence uh, in running, for example, that uh, fatigue causes uh, a decrease in running economy so in other words you would be uh, using more oxygen for the same running pace which would be leading to an earlier increase in lactate values or a leftward shift of the lactate curve presumably this economy effect is smaller in cycling than it is in running because cycling is a less technical sport if it exists at all i'm actually not aware if it does or doesn't But regardless of that, when we come back to the principles of training and adaptation, we have to remind ourselves that heavy training leads to a temporary impairment of many of the fundamental systems required for performance. Whether we're talking here metabolic, cardiovascular, uh, neuromuscular, that means that when you are under heavy fatigue, you will not be performing as well as when you are more recovered and in a fresher state. So with the right balance of training, training stress, and uh, recovery and deloading, we aim to get that super compensation effect and get fitter. That fatigue from a heavy block of training will become evident at first at the, the highest intensities, generally speaking. And even if that doesn't necessarily mean that you will see higher lactate values in the test, it might be the contrary. Uh, But it could simply mean that when you are moving beyond your normal endurance, your easy, uh, all-day-long pace, you'll see an earlier uh, increase, an earlier inflection point or earlier inflection points of the lactate curve. So lactate starts to increase earlier on at lower power levels or lower pace levels compared to normal. Because your physiology is in a constant state of flux and in this fatigued state, uh, you will sooner be accumulating lactate or getting to those increased lactate concentration levels which will mean that the interpretation of the test is that your lt1 and lt2 is lower than it would be if you undertook the test in fresh conditions so remember this fitness is never static Uh, it's uh, not something that will be the same from day to day but sometimes changes in fitness are bigger than other times and right after a longer heavier block of training uh, the final block before a key race that swing in the downward direction might be quite a bit more pronounced especially if you perhaps overdid it just a little bit but hopefully you have uh, timed your taper and recovery period well so you can see an even bigger swing in the other direction in the positive direction after so uh, that's on the training side of things Uh, to summarize yes after a heavy block of training you will be in a state of impaired uh, performance capacity simply you you have uh, in a way reached a state of uh, of non functional overreaching or at least you haven't quite recovered from that uh, from that overload yet so that means that your temporarily your fitness is impaired and that is reflected in the lactate test if you are not appropriately fresh and recovered for it the sleep that you mentioned it also contributes to the general fatigue here obviously it's a very important factor so even if you were training in a more stable condition and you were keeping yourself relatively fresh two to three nights of poor sleep might definitely have a negative impact on your test results in the same way that uh, that the fatigue from training can so i would say that the take-home message here is that a test done under heavy fatigue will only be representative of that state of training so I would recommend, yes, you should be more rested for a test. You shouldn't be tapered and overly rested, like much more rested than you are in your normal week-to-week, day-to-day training, but you should have a normal level of freshness and maybe even err on this side of slightly fresher rather than slightly more fatigued. And also remember, obviously, to control all the variables that you can control, like heat, equipment, uh, having a fan, ventilation, etc. For you, in your case, it sounds like the culprit here definitely was the fatigue uh, from training and from sleep. But for other listeners' benefits, definitely uh, keep these things in mind regarding regarding the equipment side of things and, and also temperature and environmental conditions. And if we talk about context again, uh, one example of how the test might not be directly applicable to your outdoor training and racing if you are somebody for whom power output tends to come much easier when riding outdoors, you could definitely have a difference in in 10, 20, 30 watts even, potentially, if you're at the very uh, high end of the difference between your indoor power and your outdoor power at FTP, for example. So there could be a significant difference there, as we've talked about in previous Q&As. And then you just have to be aware of that. You have to use a sort of calibration factor when you're applying the the test results to your training if you are training outdoors but using test results that were that you got from from an indoor test situation if you're using heart rate maybe that's not uh, quite as extreme but there can be differences there as well obviously for example due to heat if you didn't have proper cooling during the test if you didn't have a fan and also If you are going to the laboratory to do a test, if they're using their own cycling ergometer, then that might bring about differences in power because they have a different power meter, obviously, and even your position is different compared to on your own bike. So I would highly recommend to always test on your own bike with your own power meter when you are going to a lab to do these tests. Try to make sure that it's a lab that allows you to to do that, bring your own bike regardless of if you would have the perfect testing situation or not though my recommendation uh, in terms of using the test results for for a race plan is actually to never use any lab test as the main input for a race plan it can be a contributing factor but it shouldn't be the main factor in my opinion the best and uh, most reliable main input for creating a race plan should be your performance in key simulation workouts done leading up to the race so to give you an example for the Ironman I like to prescribe a workout like five to six times 30 minutes at Ironman race effort with five minute recoveries and uh, what you can hold in terms of power for that workout under a relatively heavy load of training and importantly still do a little brick run sometimes not as so little but uh, like a moderate brick run after that workout if you what you can hold there uh, that you can definitely hold in a tapered state in your key race heart rate can also be useful but i would put power and rpe as your primary metrics to follow and heart rate as the the third one Because I've just seen a few too many race files where heart rate was completely uncorrelated in the race compared to how it generally was behaving in training and where following a mainly heart rate based plan would have led to many difficulties if the athlete would have been just blindly following heart rate. Uh, I think that there's something about the combination of tapering and being fully fueled and hydrated before the race. Uh, but then also adding to that the race nerves and excitement Uh, caffeine perhaps taking caffeine shots and caffeine gels and uh, and also having done the swim and uh, the t1 before the bike all of these factors contribute to heart rate that might be very different from what it is in your normal training rides so so i think that heart rate is useful in racing situations mostly if you already have a good sample of previous race races where you have good consistent heart rate data and then you can look at what actually has been going on with heart rate in your races rather than in your training or in a test situation in a lab Uh, in that situation i would trust heart rate more but uh, in terms of using training or testing heart rate i don't put that much stock in it and and i don't think that it's a it's something that we can use as something, as a tertiary metric, but not one of the primary ones really in racing for all of these reasons that I, that I just mentioned. It just varies way too much on race day compared to normal day-to-day tra- training. So always obviously use your perceived effort. But also, if you have a power meter, use power numbers, and those power numbers, again, would not be based on, even though I think testing is super, super valuable, but testing your heart rate zones and your power zones, that is the main, main, main importance of that, I think, is to really be able to maximize and optimize your training. And then in the racing situation, you rely more on what you have been doing in training, your key simulation workouts. Again, that's what it comes down to for me. That's what I've seen tends to work the best with getting athletes to to good execution of their races on, on race day. So I hope that this helps, Michael, and good luck. The second question for today is from Derek in Canada, who writes, Hi, Michael, I have a question about when and how often I should be riding in aero. To give some context, context, I have been doing triathlons for about eight years, but uh, just started really committing to training in the past year. I have done countless sprints, a few Olympics, and just completed my first half-distance race in September. I live in Canada, so I'm generally riding indoors on my trainer from November to around April. I have a TT bike that I use for all my training and racing, and an old B2 road bike that I generally just use to commute to work occasionally. I'm wondering how often and when I should be riding in aero. I've heard that it's not as necessary to ride aero all winter while I'm on the trainer, though sometimes I actually find it to be more comfortable to ride in aero on the trainer. As for riding outdoors, I generally start the year, uh, the outdoor year, alternating back and forth to get my body back used to riding in that position on longer rides. But by the start of racing season in June, I basically just ride in aero for almost all of my rides other than maybe a 10 minute warm-up of my aero bars any insight and advice is greatly appreciated thanks for the awesome podcast it has helped me get through countless long commutes for work thank you derek for your question the amount of riding in the aero position is something that's going to be different for different athletes Mostly based on how much work each particular athlete needs to adapt to their aero position. So, the particular bike fit and bike position here does matter uh, because the same athlete may need to do a certain amount of riding in aero one year and then significantly more the next year if they have gone and, and had their bike fit updated, perhaps to something more aggressive that is more aerodynamic but also more difficult to put out power from. The overarching goal should be to minimize or even if possible eliminate the power difference between your aero position and your sitting up at all intensities up to and including race power. So I don't think that you necessarily have to be able to do your very high-end intervals like VO2 max intervals at the same power in your aerodynamic position as you would sitting up. But if you're racing sprints and Olympics and your race power is going to be at or around your FTP then you'd want to minimize the difference in power up to and including this specific intensity even if the differences uh, might still be present when you go even higher than FTP so at VO2 max. In other words how much you should be riding in aero depends on how easily you can reach this level of proficiency with power output in the aero position if you're somebody who is lucky and you're not naturally putting out similar powers in arrow as you would be sitting up then you probably don't need to be spending that much time in arrow in the early base training months or winter months. But if your tendency is to be significantly weaker in the arrow position compared to sitting up then this is something you want to try and address from the start and do as much work as possible in arrow. Maybe that's doesn't mean that you do a great amount of work to begin with because it might be that challenging. So the first few weeks, maybe only focus on doing the low intensity training in the arrow position and even then take breaks out of that posi- position while you are adapting. Then you might start to add segments of slightly higher intensities, intensities in the aero position, like doing some of your tempo or even sweet spot workouts partially in arrow. Start at where you're currently at in terms of adaptation, so don't put unrealistic expectations on yourself of having to complete all of the intervals exclusively in the arrow position. Maybe you do something like one minute in arrow and one minute sitting up the first few weeks of doing, for example, sweet spot intervals, and then just gradually increase that time in arrow as you are adapting. Keep in mind that it can be a lot more difficult to hold your arrow position indoors compared to outdoors because you have that very static position of your bikes your bike being fixed to the trainer so i would say that you should never really feel that you absolutely have to spend an entire two to three hour ride in aero even if you are working on your specific position endurance or you know long slow distance endurance work and you feel that you should be able to do that ride in aero entirely taking a one or two minute break every now and then even if it's as often as every 20 minutes will give you pretty much exactly the same benefits and if you can hold your aero position for that amount of time and frequency for those long indoor rides with minimal breaks then you'll easily be able to do an entire 2-3 to hour ride a similar duration ride outdoors without breaking position that's at least what I tend to see myself and with my athletes so basically... It it really depends on... It comes down to what your discrepancy between your sitting up power and your aero position power is. You can do what you have been doing so far and start the adaptation process only once you get outdoors. Uh, if you know that by the start of your racing season in June, you will be as strong in aero as you will be sitting up, up to at least your race power. But if you think that generally you have been... Not as strong in arrow as you have been sitting up and not completely adapted, then start that adaptation process earlier, already during the winter months and the indoor training season. And a side note here, by the way, regarding the indoor training season, if you can, definitely use a mirror when training indoors so you can check your position and see that your what it actually looks like and and how you position your back and uh, and any curvature curvature in the spine and versus uh, having a flat back etc too and you can compare things like what it looks like at the beginning of the ride and at the end of the ride and make sure that you you're not in in unintentionally moving out of aero position or moving into a, a less effective aero position through the over the course of that workout so since you write that you're already managing to ride comfortably in aero that's already the first essential uh, intermediate milestone achieved basically just being able to ride comfortably in aero and being able to go at a long distance in in aero and then the next step as mentioned is just to try to minimize the the difference in power output between your aero and your sitting up positions and giving yourself enough time to to cause those adaptations to to happen one more more thing that i would say generally speaking when it comes to Harder quality workouts on the bike. A good general recommendation, in my opinion, is that up to 95 to 100% of FTP, you should try to adapt to eventually be able to do all that work in aero. But when it comes to workouts above threshold, we're looking for, or above FTP, we're looking for a host of adaptations that require us to reach a very high relative oxygen consumption, meaning that if we are weaker in the aerodynamic position, but still try to do that high intensity work in the aero position, we might actually not get the same desired benefits and adaptations at a cardiovascular central level. Your heart doesn't need to pump as hard because you're not producing enough power. So above FTP, my general recommendation is to do that kind of work however you get the most power out of your legs. And for most people, that would be sitting up. And uh, finally, to paint a bit of a more complete picture and give you or relay some information from some great cycling and triathlon coaches that i've heard that advice that i just gave is exactly the advice that uh, dan Lodang, the coach of Jan Ferdinand and anne haug gave uh, when i asked him about that specific question at a seminar a slightly different take however is uh, sebastian weber in episode 180 when we talked about uh, cycling movement quality and he said that you if you're race is a time trial race or a triathlon race in the time trial position then you should be able to do basically all your training in aero including the high higher intensity intervals that doesn't mean that you have to be doing it but you should be able to do it so if you are able to hit your vo2 max power a similar power in aero compared to sitting up then you could feel free to sit up during those workouts. But if you're not, then you should be working to adapt to that, even at those higher power outputs. So that was the the advice from, uh, from Sebastian. And you can uh, listen to that in more detail in episode 180. So there are a few different ways to skin the cat for sure. But I hope that this helps and gives you some input into what might be the best solution for you based on, on your uh, adaptation time course and, and what you have seen in previous seasons. So good luck with that and uh, thank you for your question. And that's it for today's q and A. I I have links in the episode description to all the resources, uh, some publications and related episodes mentioned in this uh, episode, so check them out remember to send keep sending in those questions for future q a's to michael at scientifictraflon.com and that's Michael with a K and if you enjoy the podcast then uh, why not go to scientifictraflon.com and check out the products and services that we offer ranging from ready-made training plans to individual coaching and uh, now that house cleaning item I mentioned at the beginning Uh, I am, as mentioned, looking to uh, redesign the website scientificcraftlon.com, and uh, this time I'm going to to get some professional help with it and not do it myself. So uh, I am looking for a web designer who can also do the front-end development for a site running on WordPress. It's a great merit if you are familiar with using the Thrive Themes WordPress tools, because that's what I'm running the website on, but it's not a requirement. You can learn them on the go as well. They're not difficult. So contact me on michael at com to get more information about this and see if it might be a good fit. And uh, and if you want to link your portfolio and cv and things like that then that's obviously great but uh, you can just ask for more information and we can start the discussion and see where things go but uh, the idea is to have somebody who is both knowledgeable about the actual design process and the ui ux uh aspects of of website development but also then being able to do actually create the website even if it's just front-end development that that i need not not any any back-end things so uh, yeah looking forward to hearing from you finally big thanks from our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and get a free hydration plan and learn how to hydrate and how to replace electrolytes so that you don't lose performance in races or in key training sessions. And use the promo code that triathlon show all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube of electrolytes for free. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Remember that the promo code that we are now using, the only one that works, is TTS20. And uh, that is TTS with all capital letters. You can check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and uh, get 20% off your entire order with that promo code, TTS20. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.